he was so modest. He knew what he had done for the Reddit troop. He knew what he had done for Egypt. But I, at that time, I don't think he fully grasped how much he was loved by just people on the street. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Life podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. This episode is brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, online platform where you can get access to all my teaching materials at once. Hundreds of technique drills, multiple choreographies, themed intensives, full-length courses, everything you can think about. Whether 20 minutes or few hours for practice, you will find a program that will fit not only your schedule, but your mood as well. First seven days are free, so check it out at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes. Hello everyone, this is Ballet Dance Life podcast, episode number 160. And today we have a pleasure to talk with amazing Aguila. Since 1978, her love of Middle Eastern dance has taken her throughout the US and to the heart of the art, Egypt. It was on her first tour that Aguila was awarded the Lifetime Performer's License by the Egyptian Ministry of Culture, an honor held by only 11 foreigners. While working in Egypt, Aguila enjoyed the privilege of studying with dance and choreographer Mahmoud Rada, as well as with other famous dancers and legends of Egyptian dance. During her teaching career, Aguila has conducted classes for the deaf and hearing impaired and devised a format for use in occupational therapy rehabilitation programs assisting women in regaining range of motion. Recently, she developed a dance program for women recovering from strokes. Aguila frequently lectures in major universities on the topics of Middle Eastern art and music. Speaking engagements have included Emory University School of Near Eastern Studies, Georgian State University, and Mercer University. Aguila is the recipient of the 2004 Stella Award for Lifetime Achievement in Middle Eastern Dance and in 2006, she, together with her colleague, were selected to present their Gawazi suit in the choreographer's showcase sponsored by the Old Dominion University. To be honest, she has so many achievements and so many cool adventures as well as accomplishments in dance a career that it's we would need not only just one hour, we probably will need all 10 or even more <laughs> hours to talk about everything. But I was really happy that in this specific uh, conversation, in this specific episode, we uh, really dedicated time to 
two very exciting and I think very important topics too. First of all, we talked about the beginning of uh, Aguila's ballet dance career, how she started at uh, 29, how she got in love with this dance, how she got um, brought to Egypt, uh, moving with her love, and how she managed to combine in the beginning years very active business consulting career in USA and developing a dance career in Egypt. That's something that really will be intriguing for many of you. Also, of course, we talked about lifetime performance license, uh, which is a very unique uh, thing and so uh, rare to be awarded to foreigners. So we also talked about this and in general her years and her first contract in Egypt that sounded like a Cinderella story overall, but very exciting and very inspiring to hear about this kind of experience. And of course we talked about her years with Mahmoud Reda. And this, I think, is so valuable and it's like a treasure uh, jewels right now to collect those memories, to share those memories with dance community because, unfortunately, we won't be able to experience live uh, these kind of things anymore. But Mahmoud Rada, he is such a unique person. He did so much for Egyptian dance, uh, and he definitely will live in memories uh, of dances and he is a part of history of uh, history of Egyptian dance. So to hear about this experience uh, and those stories of Aguila's uh, uh, studying with Mahmoud Radar, her meeting with him, uh, her classes and all about that uh, friendship and mentorship at the same time it's really very, very valuable. And uh, I'm very happy and grateful to our today's guest that she shared all those moments with us. So more dancers can kind of feel the vibe and feel the heart and soul of such a great master as Mahmoud Reda. And at least via those memories, have a little touch with history, literally history of Egyptian dance. So I'm very excited about uh, this episode and I'm pretty sure we'll have a continuation at some point in the future to talk about uh, uh, many more other activities uh, that Aguila had done in her dance career and still is doing. But on this note, I invite you to join us on this uh, chat and get ready to be transformed uh, to Egypt. I am uh, really excited for our today's uh, guest, uh, amazing Aguila in the house. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Hi, sweetie. I'm excited to be with you and um, feel honored to be included in this project of yours. I'm I'm a little overwhelmed. It's a great pleasure and honor uh, for me to, to host you and uh, to feature you as a guest of a Ballad Dance Live podcast. Um, I'm really, really excited about our upcoming uh, conversation, but I really like to uh, start every interview from the very beginning. Can you share with us, uh, do you remember your very first belly dance class? Um, 
Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> it was like 43 years ago, but um, my two best friends and I, I lived in Atlanta. That's where I lived until um, 2001. And um, my two best friends and I decided that we needed an activity and we agreed that whoever found the first activity would sign us all up. And so one of the girls called us and said, oh, I signed us up for belly dance. So we said, what? What's that? You know? And, and so we went and the music was strange. And in those days, the only music we had was George Abdo and Eddie Kochak and a little bit of quasi-Turkish music. Um, and it was so long ago, the teacher was teaching with vinyl records on a, on a um, player, on a stereo. Oh, wow. And yeah, and it was in a clubhouse. And there were, I, maybe there were eight of us there. And um, I was just kind of fascinated because I was never dancing when I grew up. Um, my household dancing was not allowed. So, um, it's something that I always wanted to do when I was growing up, but here I was at the time, 29 years old and going, Oh, wow. I'd never danced in my whole life, you know, except for, um, kind of secretly at school parties. Um, and I was fascinated, but the music was weird and, um, trying to find the beat and the drummer and the, you know, um, feel coordinated. It, it was overwhelming and I loved it. I couldn't wait till the next week. And after the end of the first session, I was the only one who was still taking a class. Uh, we had a six week session and my teacher, um, she said, well, if you're willing to continue, I am, and you can just come to my house. And she lived in an apartment. It was three on the third floor, no elevator. Okay. So we would have these three-hour private classes, and my legs would shake so bad that I had to sit on my backside and scoot down the steps. I could, they were shaking so bad I could hardly walk when I left her. <laughs> well, good, good that you had to go downstairs afterwards. <laughs> well, I had to go down and sit up so I could sit on my, my largest asset and scoot down the steps. And, and then I my the car I drove was a manual transmission. So my legs were shaking as I put the clutch in, you know, and, and drove like 45 minutes to my house. But I was obsessed. And a year after that, she was a dancer in a Greek nightclub. And she said, what are you doing on December 22nd? I said, Oh, nothing. She said, good. I told them you'd fill in for me at the club. Here's what you need to do get a pair of Zills, learn to play them, make a costume, choose music. You need 20 to 30 minutes for the set. Then we'll have an audition on the Wednesday and you can dance on Saturday. <laughs> I had like three weeks to do this. Oh, wow. so. So I was obsessed. Yes. Things <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of went from there. Mm, that's awesome. You yeah. mentioned something uh, in your answer, and I would uh, wonder if I may ask, you mentioned that dancing wasn't allowed in your uh, household. Uh, would you mind uh, uh, like telling, I, you mean just... I grew, up, I grew up in a Southern Baptist household, and my parents were very strict. 
And um, when I would want to take, um, it, when I was young, I wanted to take ballet or jazz or tap. And my father absolutely refused. You know, he said, no, it was not um, a decent activity for women. And he didn't like what they wore. And you know, he was extremely strict. Um, so I could go to school parties sometimes um, if he approved. But um, social dancing on a very limited scale was all I had ever done. So um, the whole genre of dance was totally new to me at 29, you know? So. Well, and I imagine starting right away with ballet dance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> If he were still around, he'd be having a hissy fit, I'm sure. But, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, I thought about that often. It's like, yeah, you might as well just plunge right in, you know. And um, and later I did take ballet, but I was really terrible at it. And I don't speak French. And, you know, um, they said to me, oh, you're not planning on trying to make this a career are you I said absolutely not I'm just doing it because I'm learning to work with my sword and I want grace and balance you know mm. so um, well but who knows maybe life were preparing and saving you for ballet dance because who who knew who knows if you took ballet classes in childhood maybe you would become ballerina and never <laughs> hit ballet dance stage <laughs> Well, that that would be a remote possibility, Yana, but I'm like, you know, five foot one and, you know, and rounded. I don't even, I don't have a ballet, a ballerina's body, and, you know, or height. And <laughs> as I said, I, I'm only now taking a French language course, but I struggled with it back then. So I think I would have been a washout at that. <laughs> uh, um, so I'm glad it was so you started ballet dance, like you mentioned, around 29? I that started, yeah. At that time, you probably already had some idea and some goals for your uh, life, uh, uh, life goals and your potential career. What was that? <laughs> well, actually, at the time, I was um, finance director of a large manufacturing company in Atlanta, and um, my background was in accounting and finance. And um, a little bit later. Um, I decided I left the company to start my own practice, my own consulting firm. And I actually, that was in 1985. And I got my first client while I was in Egypt. I called home to check messages. And, the, and I had a client who said, oh, I heard about you and I wanted to hire your services. And I said, Um, I'll be back in three weeks, you know, <laughs> because I was in Luxor, I think, at the time. And um, so it, it was a um, good beginning. And so I had my own practice for 20 years while I lived there. And it did allow me to travel, as you and I spoke early, earlier before this began. It gave me an opportunity to travel and set my own schedule and do things uh, where if I were still in the corporate world, it would not have been so easy, you know. Hmm. So sure. just just to clarify, you were working basically remotely while you were in Egypt or you had to be you know, uh, back home? I left my, I left the job. I gave yeah. my notice in the corporate world and I decided to take about a month off and ah. I, had, I had planned to start my firm and I had told several people in the finance world 
and my very and my very first referral came while I was in Egypt, while I was in Luxor. And when I called home, you know, they were going, "Oh, and there's this doctor that wants you to work for him." And I went, "Yay!" But I'll be there in three weeks, you know. <laughs> so. Okay, I see. but then at some point you actually went to Egypt uh, for a long, long time. So I assume you probably I, yeah. quit or put on pause uh, your financial like <laughs> career. How did, I, you, did it happen, did and how it. did you have courage to do that? <laughs> um yes i did put it well actually i i put it on pause to a degree but as i had developed my company instead of just doing i didn't want to do taxes and all the other stuff i consider way boring um but i did business consulting so that i would take on a project and i might be totally immersed in this project for two months or three months And then I would go to the next client. So as it was, I had built built a following and done a lot of these projects. And then I just said, I didn't even tell them where I was going. I just said, you know, I'm going to be working another assignment for a while. And they said, okay, we'll wait to get back. And so I took that. And that's when I started working in, in Alexandria. Um, so I had that time where I could not have a job I was obligated to in Atlanta, you know, but still would have something to come back to while I was working. So I was very fortunate in that. I had a good reputation in the business world and um, clients that, you know, if they wanted different projects, they said, yeah, it's okay. We'll just wait, you know, do it when you get back. So um, that worked. And how long did they have to wait back then? (laughs) For maybe a year. <laughs> But, you know, I could go and come, too. Um, I would do a, I was working um, first time in 1985 in Alexandria, and I could work and then go home. You know, I could go back to the States. Um, maybe, much like you, have an option to travel between Toronto and, you know, Canada and the Ukraine. Um At the time, I guess it was somewhat unusual, but I didn't see it that way. I just thought it was normal for me. Um, And I could come back and work for a while and then go back to Egypt. So it was really, I guess, exceptional, but I never thought about it at the time. I just thought, well, it's what you do, you know. It's what you do. It's why I started my own company so that I could be free to do things like that. Mm. it's yeah. always so interesting to dive into this aspect of like basically holding both two careers like yes. one financial <laughs> like and developing it and still active like being like holding your own company <laughs> right. and developing a Uh, dance career too like that would be fun to work in a financial company knowing the director of this company is actually a ballet dancer too <laughs> exactly and can I tell you a story because one sure. night um, and most people you know, my clients my business clients now, I didn't discuss with them that I was a dancer I mean I was teaching I was performing in you know in all these clubs in Atlanta and but I just that was my other life and so I never said anything to them and I had this Um, client that was an advertising agency, a large agency. Um, I was doing a show in a Persian restaurant on a Saturday night. There was this photographer there 
And I didn't really think much about it because there was a big wedding party and, you know, and he was taking all these pictures and, and I, okay, fine. And so the following week I went to see my client and when I walked in the door, well, first of all, the Atlanta journal, the newspaper had printed a full page photo of me dancing in this person. <laughs> and I had no idea. Okay. And so they had it open on the reception desk when I got there and the two partners and their staff members all came out in the lobby and they were going, why didn't you tell us? And I went, well, you don't exactly say, Hey, I'll do your tax return. Five, six, seven, eight. You know, I said, that's the other me, you know, you know, the financial me, but they were so, um, they were intrigued by it, you know, and I was afraid back then that, and, and what we have to remember is back then belly dance did not have a good name in the South. I don't know about other parts of the country, but they belly dance was synonymous with stripper almost in the South. And we had to constantly fight the stereotypical image that if you were a belly dancer, you were not, you know, the only thing you were going to take off was your makeup when you were done, you know? And, and so every time we said belly dancer, they went, Oh, you're one of those, you know? And, but fortunately the reaction from these clients, you know, um, was a good one and they were excited about it and they were going, I can't, believe how long have you been doing this? I said, well, way before you came along. So, you know, no need to bother yourself, but they were just fascinated. And he said, how did you keep this a secret? And I said, well, you know me for finance and other people know me because I can count to eight without a calculator. So, um, <laughs> just, so I saw myself as like two different people, you know, and I, I've often wondered like you, it fascinates me when I meet dancers around the world and, and go, and in the beginning when I was a baby dancer, I thought they didn't have any other job, you know, how could they? I mean, they were a dancer, right? One job to a person. And then I find out that they were, um, for instance, in one of my classes, my dance company, I had a state senator, I had a neonatologist, you know, I had an electrical contractor, she had her own firm, just, you know, and then I became enamored of, oh my gosh, these people are running businesses and they are two people each, you know, maybe it gives us balance, I don't know. Yeah, but it's so always so impressive. Like even like I'm thinking like how many guests on the podcast we had like uh, doctors, pharmacists, astronomers, uh, engineers, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. all professional and very popular and famous and uh, established belly dancers too. So it's always very interesting to dive in like to and how many also dancers. Uh, uh, stepped away from their previous careers in banking, like with companies, etc., yeah. and then switched to dance. So it's always interesting to see their life path. And uh, there are actually both options. Like someone may leave their corporate career behind and just fully merge into dance, and some way people may still combine those two careers successfully. So it's yeah. exciting to see like uh, both possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think sometimes um, for some people, it's a necessity, you know, that in order to dance, they, they have the other, you know, endeavor to um, pay the bills and things like that. And, um, and, and as our lives change, you know, we, sometimes we reach a point where we can go, I'm just going to dance. And like, I just run my studio and, um, but I, I haven't found a large number of people who entirely left their careers um, to, to go dance or do something on that nature. I know my friend Artemis um, back in the early days, you know, because she's a trained um, clinical counselor and she left that behind to travel Europe and work as a dancer. And, you know, she called it her, you know, kind of her bohemian days. And, um, and now of course she dances her whole world, but um, I haven't, I mean, have you met a lot of people who just totally gave up one and moved to the other or do they keep a little bit? I think I do know quite a lot of people like this. I mean, it's relative. Like, what do we mean by quite a lot? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But, um, well, I think I, I just say it because on the podcast, we had so many guests already and many of them do have full-time dance career Uh, now from the very beginning that's why like i i guess uh, as a host of the podcast i'm not in the like you you know like uh regular uh position because i just just happens that i talk to a lot of professionals (laughs) Uh, yeah so but thinking like for instance about like countries and cities where i'm just thinking about active performers or active teachers yes i know a lot of people who combine these two careers that uh, it's very difficult sometimes to be able just to live out of dancing and it's uh, some people don't want to live just out of dancing which is also like very cool and normal Exactly. And I mean, I think, you know, when I was traveling to teach workshops and things, most of the sponsors that I met had another career and another active career besides dance. And, um, and I have met, you know, I mean, a number, very established dancers that I know, but I remember them back when they were um, a dancer in New York who used to work for FedEx, you know, in her early days, she was the secretary for FedEx and finally took the big leap, you know, and she never went back. So um, I've always found that fascinating because I think it takes, it takes courage to make that step. You're sometimes we're taking a big risk, you know, financially to say, can I make enough to live? You know, can I make enough dancing to live? And, and of course, where where you live, I think, has a lot to do with that. I'm in the Midwest now in Toledo, and um, I, we don't have any clubs here in Toledo. An hour away from us in Detroit, yes, there were some, but um, I don't know that anybody could live full time off of that. And yet the dancers I know in the Washington, D.C. area make very good money in their clubs and they have a lot of clubs. So it's, you know, I think a lot, your geography has a lot to do with it. Yep. Absolutely. 
geography, like people, audience, potential audience, uh, and also I think the uh, level of life, like in terms of like uh, the price of living in the place. Yes, yes. Because there are some places, some countries that there may be a lot of, uh, so let's say, performance opportunities, but those performance opportunities will not be paid uh, uh, decently and uh, still you won't be able to live in that place. So it's a lot of factors uh, uh, that uh, people need to consider and be okay if they are not uh, able to to sustain like a full-time dance uh, career in that specific place. It's like you just need to, to accept that uh, like... Do do the best out of it, and uh, part-time dancing can be very exciting and cool too. Or if someone wants to have a full-time career, it's probably different choices <laughs> needs to be there made and uh, change the location, <laughs> etc. So it's the matter of just just understanding the realities. <laughs> I think you're exactly right. Everyone, fortunately, we can make these choices, and um, and I think. You're right. It has a lot to do. Um, I think one of the things I'm most proud of with our studio here in Toledo is that when I came here, um, I started teaching in Toledo, I think, in 2004. Um, and belly dance had been in Toledo, maybe, but nothing had happened in the decade prior. And... By 2010, my studio was named one of Toledo's most successful small businesses. And that was quite an honor, especially from someone, you know, I didn't grow up here and I had to kind of learn my way around. And Toledo's a smaller town. It's nothing like Atlanta in terms of size. And um, so I was really proud of that. And and the both the civic and the arts community have really opened their arms to us and the dance company now gets a lot of paying jobs when they're performing at festivals. And so while it's a passion and they do it for fun, I'm, I'm really excited that they've been recognized, you know, as a valid entity and um, an artist. So we, we've made some pretty good strides here in a small Midwestern mm. city. Yeah, that's exciting. Mm. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, coming back to your uh, personal performance career, like from our uh, chat so far, it may be uh, impression that as if you were traveling to Egypt in between your financial gigs and that's it. <laughs> but it's not really the case because, <laughs> because uh, in your... Uh, among your achievements, you have a lifetime performer's license by the Egyptian Ministry of Culture, which was granted to only 11 foreigners. So the small, let's say how we uh, jokingly call them like uh, Egyptian uh, trips in between financial gigs, uh, they actually <laughs> were much bigger than that. So uh, can you tell uh, about this award and uh, how it happened? and uh, um, like your time in Egypt and your career was also growing and expanded so much there. <laughs> yeah, um, okay. Um, I first went to Egypt uh, with Morocco in 1984 and um, I'll try to give you the short version. I'm a talker, so I, I struck up a conversation in the Casablanca airport with this lady who was um, 
married to an Egyptian man. She was of German descent. And she gave me her card and she said, when you get to Cairo, you need to call me. We'll have tea. I said, yes, ma'am. And so being Southern, you know, we feel like we, if we said, yes, I will, we have to. So I called her while I was in Cairo and she sent her son to pick me up and I went to their home and had the most lovely time. And it turned out her husband was chairman of Egypt airlines. Um, just a little company, you know? And so we became friends. And the next time, 1985, I went to Egypt on my own um, to just explore, just to be there because I was in love with it. And I visited with her and um, I also wanted to go. um, My friends invited me to go with them to Alexandria and for the day, which is about a two-hour ride from Cairo. And I said, oh, if we're going to be there, I wanted to see this particular dancer that I had heard was performing at a hotel there in the nightclub. And so I took my friends because they'd never been into a nightclub. They were, um, it, it was kind of expensive for a lot of Egyptians at that time. And you know, it's a novel experience. So anyway, we went to see this dancer and I was the only foreigner in the club. So they picked on the only foreigner in the club and they said, um, come here, look. And so they started singing this little song, like my hair is not like them because it's red. And, you know, and I was short. And my nose was not like theirs. And, you know, and he, the singer says, and we'll show you how to dance like us. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> But at the time, I was dancing in Greek and Turkish clubs in Atlanta. And um, so I said, okay. And so we started dancing a little bit. And the people kind of went nuts. And the manager came running out of his office. He thought there was a a fight in the nightclub (laughs) because of all the noise. And someone said to him, look, she's American and she dances like us, you know. So that night, he before we tried to leave the club and I had paid the bill and I thought, and they called me and my friends back to his office. He didn't speak any English. And I spoke only a few words of Arabic at the time. And, and he said, how you dance like this? And I said, Oh, in the U S you know, and, um, the long and short of it is he wanted to offer me a contract to come. And I thought, well, this is crazy. This is like, you know, a lot of hot air. And he said, tell me what you want. He said, tomorrow we'll meet and make the contract. And I went, oh, yeah, right. What do you ask for? I mean, I didn't know anything about this, Yana. Nothing. You know, it's like, I just want to take my American Express card back and go home now. (laughs) And truly, they sent a car the next day to my hotel. And they picked up me and my friends. And you know, here we go back to Alexandria. And I had no clue what to ask for. So I just started throwing stuff out there and they were going, okay, okay. You know, there was no internet back then. You couldn't really check, you know, Google and say, what's the average wage of an Egyptian dancer? You know, I, I knew Madame Abla, I called her, um, she gave me some advice. She was the costume designer and she said, only in a hotel nightclub, you're not dancing in a public space. And I went, yes, ma'am. And 
they agreed to the contract. And then I still didn't believe it was going to happen. So I came back to the States and I was to open three days after Ramadan, after they finished with a big feast in June of that year. I still didn't believe it. And sure enough, the airline ticket, that's in the day when they mailed you a paper ticket and the airline ticket came. And then they kept calling, I said, Madam, you were arriving. I went, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming. And no, I mean, it felt like a Cinderella story. And they gave, they had me living in the hotel. I had a, like a little secretary that they paid and they paid my orchestra. I had 13 people in the orchestra. I had an exclusive contract with the hotel and um, they got all of my licenses. They wanted to be an artist in Egypt, to be an artist in Alexandria, to be an artist in that hotel. And, and the crazy part is I had to have an Egyptian male citizen sign for my behavior saying that if I did anything illegal, he was the one that was going to jail because I was foreign. And um, I mean, it's just this whole thing was just like, I didn't really, I was stunned that it happened. And they said, okay, you have a license for one week. And at some point, um, the Ministry of Culture will send people and they will observe your show. And they will decide if you get a license, you know, to work here how and how long the license covers. Maybe for one year, maybe it's two years, maybe, you know, when but you don't know when they're coming. Well, okay, so between none of the musicians spoke any English and my Arabic, I had hired a tutor and I was struggling with it, but finally between us, well, the first night he said, you come after four. And I said, okay, so I'm standing in the wings and the music started and I went one, two, three, four, and I exploded on stage and they were glaring at me. And I said, (laughs) afterwards he said, I meant, he said, I said after four, four songs. I went, oops, okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> then realizing that the Egyptian dancers, you know, with the mawal, they take forever anyway to get out there. And he wanted, they wanted to play their four songs and then introduce me. And they insisted on calling me by my passport name, you know, which was Angela. Only um, they'd say Angela, you know. And so sometime in that first week, I don't know when, the Ministry of Culture and his people came and they just sat through a show. I guess they had dinner in the club and I guess they liked what they saw because then I had to go into Cairo two hours away to the government office called Mugama and meet with this man from the Ministry of Culture. And he said, Madam, I give only before 10 licenses like this. And he said, you are 11 And he said, you can come to Egypt as long as you live, as long as you hold a passport. He said, you can dance any club in Egypt, anytime, you know, anywhere. And he said, it's something, it's for your lifetime. He said, it's something like no people's has seen before, to quote him. And I went, whoa, I think this is big, you know. (laughs) So, and now they don't even give that anymore. They don't, um, since the revolution, they, they quit giving that license to anyone new. So if you have it, you have it, you know. Um, so I was, I was like still living in the dream world. I was still being Cinderella at the ball, you know. Um, it was 
amazing, except that my security guards went absolutely everywhere with me. And I mean, everywhere. If I went into a dress shop, they stood outside the dressing room if I tried something on, you know. Um, I went to the beach. They went with me in three-piece suits. It's 122 degrees outside, you know. I know. And, and they stood right beside me. They wouldn't let me go into the water. I could I could sit in ankle deep water and they timed it. And after three minutes, they said, OK, madame, it's enough. It's too dangerous. You know, so they were with me all the time. And shows started about one in the morning, you know, and they would go for shortest one was 45 minutes, but usually an hour to an hour and a half with costume changes and my little secretary would be backstage and should be, you know, stripping them off and pulling them on. And, um, and um, I danced for weddings outside the hotel, but the um, hotel made the arrangements and uh, the people, you know, of course my orchestra was paid for and they transported us to and from. And um, it just, I guess it really happened, you know, <laughs> I just couldn't believe that all of this was going to happen to some little girl from Atlanta, Georgia, you know? And um, one of the biggest nights I had there was to dance for two Saudi brothers marrying two Saudi sisters. And the wedding was to be televised. And it was in um, Montaza King Farouk's palace. And I had food poisoning from the night before. Oh. So. <laughs> So I do the first set and I went back to the dressing room and just passed out, you know, and we got through the second set and I just collapsed in the dressing room. So um, I thought, wow, this is the biggest night of my Egyptian life here. And, you know, um, and my two of my orchestra members literally carried me out to the car, you know, and put me in the in the car to go back to the hotel where they were getting chewed out from the owner, from the manager going, how did you let her get sick? <laughs> it's like, it's not their problem. It was something I ate in his hotel. And, um, and it was just, I mean, it became comical. It was like, whatever, you know, we made a big show and then here they are carrying me out after it was over with. And, um, but the musicians became like my family. They just, and their wives and their children, and I would spend time with them in their homes on our night off, which was, you know, Friday because it's Holy Day. And they would invite me for Friday and all day Saturday. And and just um, the very last night, I think I'll, I'll remember until I draw my last breath. But the last night of my contract there, they dressed in tuxedos. They had all gone out and rented tuxes. And nobody would look at me when I came on stage. And they had put boxes of Kleenex all around the stage. And they were crying, the musicians. And every time I'd look at them, they'd start to cry, you know. And then I cried. And the very last song when I told the audience that this was my last night that I was traveling to America the next day, they stood up and sang to me. And they sang the song that I always opened to. And so those boxes of Kleenex got used that night, but it was so emotionally overwhelming for me to have felt that kind of love and acceptance, you know, from 
these wonderful musicians from the people in Alexandria, um, many of whom would come week after week and have their same table, you know, down front in the nightclub. And um, I think I felt if you've ever, I mean, when you have certain shows and you just feel you're in that bubble and you're absolutely surrounded by love, you know, I, it was palpable. It, it's like no other experience I've ever had. Why did you decide to go back to America? Because obviously you probably had all chances to keep going, continue the contact to get a new one. And like you were loved by audience, by musician, most likely <laughs> by the hotel like manager. So why at that moment you decided to, to stop or pause it and then go back to well, America? I had my son at the time was 16. And so he would stay with his dad while I was doing these, these different tours. And, you know, there was, um, There was that because I didn't want to, I, you know, I mean, obviously I wanted to be a part of this life. I didn't want to just say, well, here I am living in another country. Um, but the other thing is it all was very magical. And then when it reaches a point, you know, you're dancing six nights a week you're doing, um, let's say, hour to an hour and a half show. Um, what you can do is restrict it because you've got two security guards walking around with Uzis with you all the time. You know, um, it becomes a job. And I never at that time had thought about dance becoming a job it was magic for me it was it was my um go into my other world it was my um my passion it was a release but it wasn't my job and then but when you're doing it i mean you've danced in many 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 clubs i'm sure and you know when you're doing it six nights a week it becomes a job and then that job begins to dictate a part of your life and i had the most magical experience and i didn't want it to become a drudgery you know as as i lived there and i began to know other dancers and talk with them and see their life it was i mean you were always scrambling for the next gig you know the next contract and i didn't want my time to become like that so i had the magic of it i wouldn't take anything in this world for it um and it ended on a good note You know, I didn't want it to become like, oh, my gosh, and then I'm scrapping for the next job and the next because I was a novelty. You know, I was the first what they call white girl to work, in, you know, first foreigner to work in Alexandria. I have beautiful memories and great friendships and people I'm still in touch with. 
but for me, it's, it's a magical memory. It's not something that I look back on and think of as, oh, I had to worry about where the next job was coming from or finding a drummer when mine quit or, you know, all those things that go with it. it it's kind of like, a studio owner and you know, I'm a studio owner too. And some days I get frustrated and I go, I just want to dance. I just want to choreograph. I don't want to, I mean, it's the marketing and the social media and the registration process and the financial thing, you know, and the, the rehearsals. Some days you just want to stand there and dance, you know, in your studio. And I don't have any regret for keeping the magic of that, memory you know i'm i'm glad it i'm glad it came together the way it did and it i don't have any regrets about not trying to extend it mm. yeah it also takes a lot of courage sometimes to you know um acknowledge that magic and that um risk that it may be destroyed and then get that courage to take a decision to preserve this magic as it is meaning which will basically mean to step into something new and different and yes. leave that magic as a memory uh, which a lot of people hold on it for a long time and then this magic disappears and it's very unfortunate situation and uh, um yeah so very very I, brave of you to you know like not be um, afraid of uh, closing that chapter and moving on to something else and uh, basically uh, protecting those magic memories <laughs> for yourself well, much, like, much like you and I had spoken you said you know it, I think it took courage for you to step away from the stage and look what a beautiful opportunity you have that you've created with your podcast and your online classes. And if you had tried to stay in that venue before only on the stage or that becoming your whole world, look what you might've missed and look what we would have missed because you didn't do it. Mm. So thank you. Oh, yeah. I, I met the people, you know, people that I met there, like Mahmoud Retta, who became a lifelong mentor and friend. Um, and, you know, I was there when I would have time off. I could go to Luxor and see my friends and, you know, visit with the, the Mazen family. And, um, and I guess, you know, when I was living in the middle of it, it just seemed normal. It was, I didn't realize how awesome it was <laughs> until I came back or, you know, until I would start telling people about it. And it was like, it just seemed normal to me, you know, um, it's it still, still to this day feels like Cinderella because it wasn't something I went to Alexandria to try to do, to try to get a job to dance. It, it, they came to me and it was dropped in my lap. That's magical. Um, I felt enormously loved by the people there, even on the street. I'd see myself on billboards and I'd see myself, you know, on the news and things like, and that was magical. And, and I was treated so marvelously 
by the orchestra, by the hotel management. And, and yet I heard stories of other people, other foreigners who went to work in Egypt or other countries, and they were struggling the whole time. And it was a battle. And, you know, they didn't get along with the orchestra. They, you know, this, that, and the other. And um, I didn't want anything to take away those beautiful memories. I didn't want anything to tarnish it. So sometimes you have you have to know, I think, when to keep it, you know, and, and it becomes a beautiful box you can open and, and remember, you know, but nothing nothing ill came of it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's very nice, and it indeed sounds like Cinderella story. <laughs> very magical <laughs> and beautiful. <laughs> Uh, if I weren't dancing barefoot, I'd look for the glass slipper, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, your meeting with uh, Mahmoud Rada during your years in Egypt and his mentorship for you, um, how do how do you see that meeting? possibly changed uh, something in you as a dancer, maybe, or maybe not. <laughs> But what the, did it mean for you as a, as a dancer, like uh, Mahmoud Reda's mentorship? He believed in me. And I met him first in 1984 in a group class with that trip with Morocco. And... When I went back, 1985 was a pivotal year for me because that's when I went to work in Egypt the first time. And when I was back in Cairo in that February, I decided I wanted to take classes with him. So here's how naive I was, little girl from Atlanta. You know, I had his card, his business card from that he gave me from the first time I met him in 1984. And he had a studio on Asriel Neal in downtown Cairo. And I got a taxi and I said, take me here. And I pointed to the card. And then we got there and his studio was this place on a, again, a walk up, third floor walk up. Remember my first teacher lived on a third floor walk up. And um, I just simply walked up the three flights of stairs and rang his doorbell at the studio. And like I had good sense, which now I know I didn't, but I just rang it and I held up his card and I said, you came to the Hotel Victoria last year and you taught us and I want to take classes with you. And he said, I remember you. You're the little girl from Atlanta. And I went, yes, that would be me. And he said, he shrugged his shoulders. He said, okay, come in. And I said, now? He said, you said I want the class. So <laughs> I went in, and the studio at that time, he was the photographer for the Reda Troupe. He did all of your photography. And he developed. He had his own little dark room there in the studio and a small rehearsal space and another room that held all their costumes. He said, I'm busy now and with the um, photograph. He said, you, you have to wait. But here you can play with the costumes. And he opened the closets to all the, and he pulled them out and piled them up on the floor, different costumes. This is, Try them on and play. He said, I'll be back. So I'm trying on costumes from, you know, these different 
performances and going, oh, wow. And he was developing the film in his darkroom. And then he finished and he came out and he said, so now we can talk. And he said, you want a class? And I said, yes, please. And I said, how much? And he said, I don't know. I'll decide. And he said, you come tomorrow after two. I said, okay. So I went back the next day and it was a private class. Well, what I didn't know, Yana, was nobody just walks up to Moody's door and, and rings the bell and says, hey, I want to take a class with you. I mean, for crying out loud, he was Mahmoud Retta. <laughs> he was probably as puzzled by my audacity as, as, as I was shocked at it later. And he said, I think this girl, she's a strong person. <laughs> Come to my door and says, you, I want your class. <laughs> and, and it, okay. And so we danced. It must have been a couple of hours. And I said, he said, now I must, I have to be finished. And I said, okay. And I collected my things and I please, I said, please, how much, you know, do I give you? And he said, show me what you have. So I took all the money I had out of my purse and I held it out and I said, take what you think is correct. And he said, oh, you know, we're not using this color money in Egypt anymore. This money is not good. And I believed him. You know, I went, oh, my God, because there was a black market in Egypt, and I had money changed on the black market, okay? And I thought, oh, my God, this is the wrong money. It's invalid anywhere, you know. And he started to laugh, and he said, I don't want your money. He said, okay. I said, no, please, really, take any 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 money. And he said, um, buy me dinner. I said, yes, sir, I will buy you dinner. He said, I have a chicken place I like to go. I said, okay, we'll go there. Well, okay, so we get a taxi and he tells them to take them to Andreas. And we had dinner and I asked for the bill. And of course, nobody gives him a bill because he's not Greta, okay? I still don't get it, naive little girl from Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> and, and so... I had two hours of classes and a great dinner and conversation with this grandmaster, you know, still thinking in my naive little way, well, this is okay. This is normal, you know, but um, something, there was a, a kindred spirit or a passion about that. I think he saw in me, he said, I think you're Egyptian in your heart. I think you're Egyptian, you know, and I said, maybe so, maybe. But every time I had time off, I would go into Cairo and take classes with him. He never, ever let me pay him, ever, in all the years. And when, and as we would talk, he would say, tell me about your choreographies. It's going, I'm going, uh, you're Mahmoud Reda, let's talk about yours, you know, we'd sit up sometimes all through the night watching his his films you know and watching performances of him and and he said no one cares about this and I said I care I want to watch the stick dance again he said you saw it five times I said I want to watch six and you know I think two things happened Yana I think he was so modest 
he knew what he had done for the Reda troop. He knew what he had done for Egypt. But I, at that time, I don't think he fully grasped how much he was loved by just people on the street. And I think he saw in me, as he well told me later, someone who didn't yet understand how good she was. And he said to me, one day you'll come to Egypt and you'll teach the master. I'll be waiting, you know. And he would laugh. And I said, right. So I think it was the first time in my, it was a rarity in my adult life that someone had said to me, in essence, I believe in you. I think you're good because I've been raised in a culture that you were never good enough and, you know, and on and on. We don't have to dwell on that. But but it was, he said, I see your Egyptian heart, you know. And for some reason, I think it spoke to him. And the friendship grew. I was never not amazed at this man and his ability to hear music, to create choreographies. And sometimes he would make me sit with him at the light board. He would even do the lighting for the shows and he would explain to me why he's doing this and why he's doing that, you know. Um, And every time I would go back again, he would say, come after two, I will make lunch. And we always had spaghetti because it's the only thing he knew how to make. And and he was so happy and he, he would say, did you remember to miss me? And I'd go, yeah, sometimes I did. (laughs) Like, um, I think it's amazing still that someone like him, whatever he saw in me, that he wanted to grow it, you know? Um, And he would never, ever, as I said, never, ever let me pay. He gave me music. He gave me, that was never released to the public. He gave me photographs I have um, that were never published, things that he took. And when we met, when he decided to retire, let me go back and say that in the 90s, mid-90s, when he started touring um, in the U.S., he I sponsored him several times, so he would spend um, maybe a week or so at my home in Atlanta. And... Sometimes between his cities, he'd call me from New York, New York and say, here I am in New York and you are in Atlanta. I'd say, yeah, I know. And he'd say, oh, well, I'm in New York and you're there. And I said, yes, I know. He said, can I come home? I said, sure you can. So he said, good, I have my ticket. You pick me up at 10 o'clock tomorrow at your airport. <laughs> I said, okay. So he would fly to Atlanta and stay with me for a week and then go to his next city on the tour. Yeah. And I had a rehearsal space in my house and he could dance and we could dance and he could just be, you know, he could just be, he said, a normal Egyptian person. So the friendship was deep and, and long. And, and at the end, when he said, I said, Moody, how do you want people to remember you now that you're retiring? Meaning what would be the most important thing you wanted to be known for? And he took it 
in another way. And he said, I want to be remembered because I want you to teach them about me. And I said, oh. and he said, now do you understand? I said, Moody, there's so many people. There's so many talented dancers and they can teach about you. And he said, yes, of course, it's okay. <laughs> but you have to promise me that you will teach about me. And I, he said, because you know my heart, you have Egyptian heart. And I said, I promise, you know. And he said, now you understand all the times that he would dance and with me and give me classes and not taking money. And he'd give me the music and he'd give me artifacts and he'd, you know, tell me the stories. And um, he would look at choreographies that I had written and help me with them and he said, now you understand? This is why. Because now we're at this time and you will teach about me. He said, remember, I told you once, you will come to Egypt to teach the master. Said, I've been waiting, you know. So um, another magical, magical time. And would that have happened had I stayed doing contracts in Alexandria? Cairo, probably not, you know? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I know, I get tears, sorry. But, no, um, no, Paul, like, it's yeah. so great and so inspiring, and it's so valuable right now to also hear those memories uh, about great, also great master. Like, thank you so much for sharing it. It's uh, such a treasure moment that I almost felt like uh, we're sitting together in uh, yeah. Mahmoud Reda's house watching TV with uh, those uh, recordings <laughs> and the stick dance. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and it was so funny. One time I went to see him on one of the visits. I said, I've decided to write about you and things I learned from the master. He said, you learned something from me? And I said, sure. He said, tell me 10 things you learned from me. And so I listed 10 different things, you know, um, like even how to measure costumes. Do you remember those 10 things? The t um, I can remember a good many of them. Um, I remembered one in particular. He was saying, um, when you make costumes, measure up from the floor so that when the audience sees the line of the skirt, it's equal all across. And some girls, we had to dance in shoes. He, I danced with them a few times. And, and the shorter girls like me had higher heels and the taller girls had almost flats, you know, to give an even look in the height. And um, he said, you measure from the floor because then when the audience is seeing, you know, they, um, they see an even line in the costumes. I went, okay. And he would say, um, to make a choreography, you first must make a problem. And I said, what? I said, writing choreography is a problem. He said, no, make a problem. He said, for example, have an uneven number, you know, because um, very often we do things in pairs or there's a tendency to do things in pairs. He said, make an uneven number of people and it will make your choreography more interesting. So, and he said, and make it so everyone, they do not do the same thing all the time. 
you know, because when we're teachers and we're with our baby dancers and, you know, you write the choreography and they're all doing the same thing at once. You know, it's not until they grow up a little bit that we split the lines off. And he said, um, and he said, don't forget the boys. If you can find some boys, it's very good. He said, I think it's a big problem in the U.S. <laughs> yes, we didn't have many male dancers, you know. Okay, okay, but if you can find some boys, it's very good. And he said, but you, he said, do not take them home. I said, okay, I remember this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he said, if you want to make humor, he said, um, first, you must be very, very, very good dancer to make humor in your dance. And he said, or people will think you're a bad dancer. And he said, don't make your humor in the beginning. Make it close to the end. Um, he said, because if you make it in the beginning, people will be waiting to laugh again. But also they don't understand that it's something funny. They think maybe it's an accident with the program. So make it at the end so you can show them that you were good dancers, you know, until the end. And he said, it's okay if they laugh at the end because then they think, this is good and this is fun. But if they laugh at the beginning, they think maybe you're just bad. So I said, okay. <laughs> and he said, and don't dance everything you know in one dance. He said, really, Habibi, this makes me crazy. He said, do people in the U.S., you have to dance everything you know in one dance. And so as training, when one of the earlier lessons I had with him, he said, Okay, three steps you must do. Choose three. Tell me what they are or three movements. And so I would tell him, I would pick three. And he said, okay, you do them until the music is finished. And so he would put the music on. Well, a short song to him was 11 minutes, you know. And he said, if you can take three and do them each direction you can think of, in any style, he said, you understand you don't have to put everything you know in one piece. So he was looking for simplicity, well done, you know. And if you did um, maybe a, a hip drop, let's say, you might do it from the right side, then do it on the left side, do it on both, alternate, turning different facing directions, traveling, standing still. You know, he said, look how many ways you can do one simple thing. Yeah. It's and interesting he, because it's combination of kind of you're talking about simplicity, but Mahmoud Rada's choreography are not simple at all. Oh, of course they're not, but there's a secret to it. <laughs> there's there's secrets to it, but the one thing you know, because he said to me, um, I was taking a workshop with him. He was in Minneapolis one time, and I was. At lunch, I said, Moody, I, you know, I can't even see you. There were so many people in the room. He said, Habibi, look at my feet. He said, so get down on the floor and look at my feet and forget the rest. Weight placement was huge with him. There were two things. If you were going to dance Rada, you have to know right from left, and you have to know weight placement. Are you stepping on it or not, you know? And he said, this is the biggest problem for dancers. They, if you say place right or step on the right, 
He said, why you leave a little on the left? I don't understand. I said, step right. You know? So um, one of the workshops I like to teach is kind of, you know, the myth of the master, but we take away all of this mystique and we break it down to he had some very simple rules himself. And once you get those in your head, his choreographies, not that they're not difficult because they are, but they become easier to understand and to execute. But he was very much into flow, you know, but 90% of his turning, for example, is to the open foot. Not exclusive, but 90% of it. So you know if he's starting to turn, you don't have to say which way. You just have to know where your weight is, you know. So um, it's – but you're right. I think I think for the novice, his choreographies can be just overwhelming. And I think for uh, people – who took, whoever took Mahmoud um, Reza's workshop, they know what we are talking about and how crucial it is to pay attention. Where is your weight? On which leg? Is it step? Or is it just a foot uh, to the side or to the front? Yeah. And for people who never uh, took his workshops, I think it will really click... <laughs> <laughs> if you ever study with someone who now teaches his workshops, because it's something very specific and very unique. And this is something that we need to pay attention in every choreography. And whenever we study in anyone's choreography, it's one of the trickiest parts. Like sometimes you forget to shift your weight. That's why you cannot turn to the left or to the right, just because your weight is on different leg than the choreographer's or the teacher's weight is. But in Mahmoud Reda's choreographies, it's really like shouting at you like you have to pay attention to it <laughs> and he, you know, it's funny that you say that because you know I never heard him raise his voice to anyone but sometimes I wished he had you know because he would come at you and look at you and he said I say right you put left why I don't I went, think he needed um, to shout his choreography no, did it for him <laughs> <laughs> yes he didn't have to shout but he would um he was so, um, I don't know. I think he was just always so um, gracious to other dancers and, you know, um, whether they were good, bad, or, or so-so. And he was um, he was never full of himself, you know. I remember going into a classroom, I think we were in Connecticut years and years ago, um, and I arrived, I was there on time, but there were so many people, you know, I didn't get to say hello to him. And I hadn't told him I was coming because I didn't know until the last minute that I, I could get there. And, and so there must have been a, over 100 people in this huge hall and he was up on the stage. And so we're following him through his warm up and he turned around and he stopped and he, he looked out and he put his hand to shield his eyes and he said excuse me and so he tottered down the steps and through the middle and everybody was parting ways and he said it's my Angela it's my Angela and he wrapped his arms around me and he stood there and he cried and he said why don't you say to me Moody I'm coming to Connecticut I said because I don't know until and you know and he's just we're standing there in this wonderful hug and He's just rocking back and forth. 
And, you know, and I could see other people were getting impatient because, I mean, they paid for this time in this workshop with, and here he is hugging that Southern girl from Atlanta, you know, and then he turned around and he said, did I say to you, stop to everyone? You know? <laughs> he said, why you stop? You just stand there. You stop. I am seeing my friend. I don't say to you, stop. You know? <laughs> and then he tottered back up on the stage and I said, great, make me really popular with these people. Why don't you, you know, but um, he just, friends were important to him. And um, I can't recall that he ever didn't have time for a friend, you know, to spend with a friend. Um he knew what he was capable of. He knew what his dancers should be capable of. And like you said, he didn't have to shout at anyone because his choreographies would do that. But one, you have to know right from left. One, you have to understand to step, you know, and which way to turn. And even if you knew that, you could follow, you could anticipate, you know, very often you could after a while, because he had certain combinations. And I knew if he started the first one, there was going to be this particular combination would follow and then a turn. It was like signature moody, you know. But um, I still, I love his choreographies. But interestingly, he never uh, wrote them down. He recorded some with his movie camera. But he... And they sold the DVD when he was touring the U.S., you know, at different cities. He would have different choreographies available on DVD. But but for his own use, he never wrote them down. And But he had a memory, like a steel trap, you know. And um, I was he could just remember. about to mention it, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, oh, no, we did it this way when we danced in Alexandria. But when we went to Paris, we did it like this. And it was like, wow, I can't remember breakfast this morning and you know, he can remember uh, 92 versions of the choreography. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And it was also amazing how he was getting up at his workshops and like dancing and uh, marking the steps himself to like so like solid age <laughs> and he's yes, still up he on the feet. Like, and I remember like yeah. my, my last workshop was... Uh, Quite a while ago with him, it was 2012, I think, but it's already he was so old and what? he was with two assistants who was who were messing up the choreography and he got annoyed <laughs> and he got up and started dancing uh, himself. <laughs> wow, exactly. And you know what, Yana, just to see him do that would have made the entire workshop worthwhile. I mean, for me, just to see him get up and dance, you know, and and do that. It makes, I mean, I can't imagine anyone not just waiting for the moment to see Mahmoud Reda take a few steps, you know. Um, in I think it was in 99 at the International Conference, um, in LA on, on dance, they were honoring he and Farida and um, he's, <laughs> I had tickets and I was sitting on the second row um, and he hated what he, we call dog and pony shows where he was, he was very uncomfortable with like 
getting awards and things like that. And then he'd have to speak and he'd say, it just made him self-conscious. And so he would always say to me, do I have to wear a jacket for this? Which meant it was sort of, you know, a dressier. And I said, well, yeah. And so that night um, he saw me, he found me in the audience and he decided to wear red sneakers, Keds. He said, because they would help him not be nervous. <laughs> can, can you imagine Moody being nervous about anything? He didn't want, he would, they were going to give him this honor and he was nervous to have to say things to a big audience. So he wore red sneakers. And so he got up there to accept his award and he walked to the edge of the stage and he waved to me and he held up one foot with his red sneakers. <laughs> he says, you like <laughs> Yeah, I like him. That was cool. And that helped him not be nervous. Wow. Um, I can't uh, I can't believe uh, this hour passed so fast. I know. Today. I just looked at the clock. Oh, my God. And I almost, like, really don't want to wrap it up. Uh, but at the same time, I also want to be mindful of your time. And... Uh, oh, uh before i ask our uh, summary question i first of all want to thank you for sharing your time and sharing uh your memories uh, uh first of all your memories about the beginning of your dance career and of course memories of your uh, work uh, and um, friendship with uh, mahmoud rada uh really thank you for leaving it out and sharing with uh dance community because i truly believe that those kind of memories they they need to mm. to exist and they need to to inspire and uh, remind uh, um, other dancers about people who really changed a lot in the well in the history of egyptian dance yeah it was, uh, and Yana, thank you for even asking me and for being so tolerant, listening to my memories. I could talk about, about people like Moody forever. I think he was the most profound influence on me. I learned about, um, you know, it was so wonderful that somebody so important and so famous in him treated everybody around him as if they were his equal, you know. And he was as interested in what they were doing as a dancer even more so than he was in telling you what he had done, you know? And I hope someday my dancers will feel a little portion of that for having worked with me. Mm. Thank you for even asking. Oh, it's a great pleasure and uh, great honor to hear those kind of stories uh, from you. And uh, <laughs> well, I also kind of feel like, oh my God, like we, I know we just scratched the surface of actually your activities. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I really sincerely hope we can uh, in the future repeat uh, uh, this, uh, in, not repeat, but continue this conversation in uh, episodes uh, two, three, four, ten. <laughs> Who knows how many? Because I know it's just, just, just a very, very, very surface of what actually you have to share. But I'm very grateful that we... Um, took time and you took time also to dig like you know maybe in a smaller piece but we kind of like dipped a little bit digging and you you literally took us uh, with you t at 
to Egypt to Mahmoud Rader's apartment and we were dancing and practicing <laughs> with you uh, together so thank you so much uh, for um, for sharing it and taking time to to dig into those beautiful memories <laughs> oh thank you sweetie so much you just made my my whole month you know I really appreciate oh. that you're taking the time to create this project too because people will be able to go back and hear these things, all these wonderful people that you've interviewed and they will have, they'll have a chance to touch history because of what you're doing. So thank you. Ah, oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Um, also, of course, I do want to ask uh, uh, about your current activities. I know we are doing a big jump <laughs> yeah, from okay. past to current, but can you please at least share with our listeners uh, Uh, I know you're doing online classes uh, during yeah. this time. So where they can find more information, what they can expect at your classes, and uh, maybe uh, if you have any favorite social media that they can follow and see more about yeah. your current activities. So if you can share all that good stuff with us, it would okay. be very awesome. <laughs> Well, currently we just started a, I just started an uh, online series called Explore Folklore, which I'm taking people um, through the different dance styles um, of Egypt. And right now we're working on Saidi. So we're having like a sampling as we move um, around Egypt, uh, everything from, uh, and we're going outside of Egypt too, a little bit of North African dance and you can find that at agila.com a-e-g-e-l-a.com tells you about the online classes and we're on facebook uh, we have something called the agila monster mob and um, they have a lot of activities happening and i plan to go back in studio in june and artemis and i are working to do our Um, we have a workshop that we're very proud of, the Turkish-Egyptian Connection, where we talk about how the two styles of dance both came together and then diverged and where the um, similarities are in it. It's um, it is usually a three-day thing, but we're taking this online um, to study it. And she and I have been friends, uh, gosh, since the mid-90s. And um, I think of her as the icon of Turkish dance and Um, she has long said she respected my, you know, position with the Egyptian dance. And so a great friendship um, came of this opportunity to share that, that we are more in common than one would think. Um, and we'll forgive the, Turk the Ottoman Empire that they occupied Egypt. We won't even talk about that. But um, That project is under works. I'm writing some short story collections um, about human interest stories about my time in Egypt and funny things that happened, little vignettes, and um, compiling that. My studio assistant, Cheryl Johnson, is cracking the whip on that, you know. So um, that's my current project and looking to develop online workshops a little more. But also I'll be excited to get back and start rehearsal with the dance company and looking forward to hopefully a performing fall, if not um, before that. Mm. So, yeah. That sounds so exciting. It is exciting. I, I miss my, my dancers. Uh, I, I miss the energy of being together, you know. So we're looking forward to a time when we can do that and, 
and be performing again and I can be creating choreographies and I've been trying to archive my, my dance history and um, there's a few decades to deal with. So mm, <laughs> it's kind yes. of a project. That, that's for sure. <laughs> Well, um, I wish you good luck with all your current and upcoming projects. I definitely will include links to social media and website to the show notes of the episode. So all our listeners, you know, you can easily find all links in the show notes to this episode and connect to our beautiful and awesome guest and get even more inspiration (laughs) from other activities and sources. And I would love to sum up our conversation with our traditional question of the podcast. Uh, We have one question that I ask every single guest, Uh regardless of... Of who they are? (laughs) No, sorry, you disappeared for a second. Uh, Regardless of what we talked during the interview. So are you ready? (laughs) Okay, I'll go for it. So the question is, what makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again so you keep doing it for so many years? Because it's the one dance that I know of where you don't have to be a certain height, a certain um, body type, if you will, because it has celebrated women and now men, but it has celebrated women um, and their uniqueness. So every decade of our life is something to celebrate. I think um, the Egyptian people, they would say, they feel like a woman is really sexy, not until she's maybe in her 40s or 50s. I love that attitude. But they said she's lived long enough to have soul. And so there's a passion um, about mature women because the longer they live the more soul there is the more intriguing that is um and it's the only movement form that i know of that as we progress through the decades of our life can still be done um where we're not expected to do this at 50 the way we did it at 20 or do it at 70 the way we did it at 30 so yes I love it for that. That's it for today, guys. But before you go away, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. And if you post it on social media, please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast. Thanks for being with us and I'll see you next week. Same time, same place.